You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashofSteel.com. This is episode 76. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is my regular panel, uh, freelance writer Julian Murdoch. Hello, everyone. Nice to be regular. And freelance writer Rob Zachney. Stop saying that. Oh, it's so much fun. It doesn't get old. It's not quite like Tom's coffee thing, but... Which never got old. Uh, I want to thank Julian and Rob for holding down the fort uh, last week while I was out uh, reacquainting myself with my wife and her family. She is off doing research for the summer, so I had to go out there and be a good husband and remember what she looked like. So thanks, guys, uh, for doing a good job on the show. No problem. We love it. We're glad it's still standing. It's mostly still standing once I cleared out the wreckage. with me today to discuss, uh, with us today, to discuss a topic that many people have been asking that we cover, and it's one I've been wanting to cover and just needed a little bit of a push to finally get it out the door, and that is modding in strategy games. Uh, user-created content, how developers see it, uh, how the community sees it, and how mod makers interact with developers uh, and mod making tools. Important topic, and one that is becoming certainly more important as the PC tries to distinguish itself from its console cousins. So we have uh, with us uh, today uh, two people who are very interested in this topic and have experience in it. We have uh, from Maxis, uh, Soren Johnson, who's been on the show before. Soren, thanks for coming back. Yes, great to be here. And we also have with us uh, the creator of probably the most complete and most impressive mod for Civilization IV, the Fall from Heaven uh, mod, which I love and played to death, though it has you know issues like all mods do love it love it love it mr derek paxton hello thank you for having me derek like glad glad to have you soren you've been in this business for a very long time right you've been in a couple of companies and when you designed civ 4 you explicitly left a lot of room open for mods as a developer from the development side what is the place of mods from the developer end how do they see mods what is the role of mods why are they important to promote um, well, I think a lot of developers have kind of mixed feelings about mods. I wouldn't say they're all sort of completely on board. Um, so, you know, I think you'll see uh, different different companies have very different attitudes toward them. And one of the, one of my big goals with Sephora was um, I really felt like strategy gaming in general was lagging behind some of the other genres in terms of its uh, modding support. Um, it, you know, it seemed to me most of the time when you talk about great mods for uh, the PC, you know, you're generally talking about shooters. Um, you know, things like you know Team Fort and Counter Strike, obviously, um, stuff like that. Um, and I thought well, it was a shame because I actually thought that strategy games are actually a better fit for mods um, than almost any other genre because strategy games are really built around you know a few a few simple rules. Um, you know, a, a, a small set of data, you know, you know, your list of units and technologies in the case of Civ, um, you know, and changing those, those set, that small piece of information could lead to kind of radically different games. Um, so, you know, I really wanted to, you know, tackle that with Civ 4, you know, really turn it into, you know, a great um, sort of turn-based strategy engine. Um, and, you know, it's, it, is that change was something that 
um, kind of got some resistance within the team because developing developing games is really hard, right? And you can you can sort of um, you can sort of go a certain distance if you just kind of you know leave the back door you know, the, the screen door open for modders, you know, where you're just saying like, you know, okay, if you want to come in and mess with the stuff, fine, but we're not really going to you know, help you out with it. Um, but, you know, if you really kind of, you know, take time out from your regular, your, your regular uh, production schedule to, you know, make sure that, for example, like in SIP4, you know, the Python actually has access to, you know, a huge chunk of uh, the SDK, and in fact, that people who extend the SDK can uh, extend more functions that Python can be uh, have access to. I mean, that, that's you know, the technical details don't matter, but you know, it, sometimes it's hard to justify why you would do that as opposed to working on one of the many features from the main game that usually gets that you know that's on the chopping block. Well, um, well, why, well, why would you? I mean, that's sort of the question. I mean, what what's the What's what's in it for you, in a sense, as a designer to do that, other than the fact that you think it's cool? Well, I mean, my my hope wall was was saying that you know what I want to find is uh, you know the Counter Strike of strategy gaming, right? You know that's something that we can't um, you know we can only anticipate and hope for. You know we can't actually deliver it, um, but it's like we're filling this we're leaving this blank for someone else to fill. Um, and in some cases, yeah, it's it's a big risk. You know, it's you know nothing's for sure. No one um, could have predicted you know the you know the rise of Counter Strike. Um, so you know, my my hope was that um, by spending all this time in modding, something would come out that would compel people to buy Civ Four who may not be interested in the core game. Um, you know, even even though you know even though something like Fall from Heaven is a big success, it's still a hard thing to quantify, right? Um, I mean, I'm sure there's probably some people who aren't interested in SIP at all and but would play a, a fantasy game like Fall From Heaven, but, you know, honestly, that's still probably a pretty small group of people. Um, so, you know, it's hard to quantify. Some, sometimes you do stuff on a design team just because, a development team, just because it feels cool. Like, it feels like this is, this is something that really makes our product fresh, is really going to tie us close with our community. Um, and, you know, honestly, from my point of view, to some extent, it's just uh, a purely selfish thing. Like, I I didn't anticipate this going into games, but going into game development, but what I enjoy the most uh, once a game get out, gets out there is not necessarily, I mean, it's great to see people enjoy the game and having fun and you know, getting feedback about what they like or don't like or whatever. The thing I love more than anything else is seeing what modders do with, uh, with the games I make. Um, just because it's, you know, they're able to go down all these roads that I wasn't able to, to try out. Um, and they're just able to do things that I couldn't imagine. You know, it's like, imagine, you know, you, you know, writing an article and then you get, you know, like, hundreds of people just keep extending your work. You know, it's just, it's just really fascinating. So Derek, let's take it from your perspective. Uh, judging by the quality of the work in the fall from Evan 2, I'm assuming that Civ 4 was not the first time you had developed a mod. Uh, I did create one mod before when I was in high school, but it was uh, uh, not anywhere near the kind of mod that fall from heaven is. Um, fall from heaven's my first real mod, my first engagement with trying anything at a code level or learning to program at all. So what's the motivation? What got you into 
saying, well, this is something I want to do? Uh, my initial motivation was to learn how to program. Um, I tried many times before to get into C++ and got my, you know, learn C++ in 21 days and got to day three or four and got bored and went on to something else. But this was a chance to um, combine, you know, some education that I wanted to get on my, with myself in a, in a way that was fun. I, I didn't set out to, you know, create this, to spend the next three years working on a fantasy mod. But uh, the Fall from Heaven got such positive feedback from the community early on, and I got encouragement from uh, Soren uh, specifically uh, that, that right. he liked it early on. And that's a huge amount of motivation for a modder that's out there, you know, doing my own little thing, making a game that I thought just I would play, and uh, really helped me through it. And a, a lot of it's in Fall from Heaven comes from the community. There's been, uh, you know, a lot of people on the Civ Fanatics forum that have given me a lot of input and allowed me to. Uh, you know, make the game even better, along with a, a substantial team of uh, 13, 14 guys that spent a lot of time, artists and uh, and other programmers and writers that have really spent a lot of time working on Fall from Heaven too. It's definitely not a one-man project. Now, that's yep. something that has always interested me. How did how did your mod team sort of coalesce around this project? Um, I get that I get that question a lot because a lot of people are looking to build mod teams, so they have an idea for a mod that they want to make, and their first step is, boy, you know, I have this idea that I want to make, and I need artists, and I need a programmer, and I need a uh, 2D artist, and uh, you know, some writers, and I need them to go out and do their pieces, and then I'll tell them what to do, and it'll be great. Um, and I don't think that model works from from my side. <laughs> Surprise, surprise. Yeah, it's a good idea, but n nobody's willing to buy into that. You know, okay, well, I'll go start working hard on this mod that doesn't exist. The only way it worked for me was I, I had to be willing to commit to doing 100% of the work just right out of the gate. I start putting versions out there. The public can see, you know what, we had a version that came out today, a version that comes out four weeks from today, and another four weeks, get a, get a new version out every four to six weeks. Uh, people see the progress, they get a lot of downloads, and then and only at that point are the artists and the people that make music and uh, the writers willing to sort of jump on board and they want to be a part of your project. So, so for me, the secret to building a team was be willing to do everything alone, get it as far as I can, and then if other people came along uh, that were willing to help out, so much the better. And I was very fortunate to get um, some very talented people to help with that. Yeah, I always find it really interesting, like, because you know, with Civ 3 and Civ 4, you know, I would, you know, kind of look through the forums in the months afterwards, kind of, you know, seeing all these interesting projects pop up, you know, and some of them bear fruit and some of them really fizzle out. It's kind of interesting to see, like, what the difference is. Um, you know, there's, there's, it seems like there's, it's very common to see, like, kind of a mining project that's very kind of um, design heavy, where someone just, you know, writes lots and lots of story and lots and lots of ideas and throws stuff out there. But, you know, the ones that work are really the ones built around, um, you know, some sort of project, you know, some sort of functioning project that just keeps keeps iterating, you know, keeps getting that kind of slow turn of getting a little bit of feedback, getting more feedback, getting people more and more excited about it because you're releasing something regularly. Um, you know, that's really like the key thing. Um, it's, it's hard to do. I mean, you see so many projects fall apart just because, you know, people people get tired, you know, that's, there's like that initial excitement that lasts maybe, you know, a couple months or so. Um, but it's so hard to go beyond that. Uh, go ahead. Well, I mean, that's, that's something that was going to be my next question is, um, you know, along the same lines, yeah, so many, so many projects do fall, fall apart. And in, in the end, it's, it's all volunteer work anyway. Um, I guess, 
what are the what are the what did what did you learn about how to manage a mod team working with um you know working with people at a distance via email via forum posts and uh, how did you manage to keep everyone together on a project um, of this size? Uh, that's impossible to do. Um, so what I did when I ran Fall from <laughs> Heaven was I set my goals for the next vert. You know, there's a very clear strategy. This is what's going to happen here. It's going to happen in small bite-sized pieces. We're going to release each of these small bite-sized pieces as we go. And here is all the work that team members could work on if they want to. So the artists knew exactly what art needed to be made. Um, the writers knew exactly what had to be written. Everybody knew what was out and available, but nobody was assigned anything. I never held up a release because an artist had to get these three models done by Friday and he was you know, running behind. None of that ever happened. These, were, these are people that are doing it just as a hobby. They're just doing it for fun. So if somebody jumped in and, and made you know, six units for me in, in art, then great. They got checked in and they got to see it go out in the latest version. Um, and those regular releases were really important so that everybody got to see that when they did contribute some work, it got out and the public was talking about it and they were excited to see it and lots of positive feedback came in. But if they took a month off and didn't do anything at all, that was absolutely fine too. It never pressed our dates. If, if I said we were going to release on July 1st, then we released on July 1st with whatever we had. Um, well, but, it was never, I mean, uh, you know, we had to do X amount of work you, to hit that day. You, you make it, I mean, both you and Soren have almost made this sound ridiculously easy, which just is unfathomable to me. I mean, Soren, you said, uh, you know, well, it seems like strategy games would be so easy to mod because you can just change a few bits of information, et cetera. And, and to my mind, I always think of, say, a first-person shooter as being easy to mod because you just sort of use the editor and make new maps and skin a few things and you have a quote-unquote mod it, but, yeah, but like, maps you know, are it, sorry. Uh, but maps are content, right? Like a lot of a lot of Civ Four mods, you know, they're just changing just changing values, or they're changing the way the map script works, or you know, right. they're using all of our. Like the nice thing about something like like um, uh, Civilization is it's all of these little you know a atomic pieces that you can rearrange. You know, um, right, right. I mean, but, I, but in Fall for Heaven, Fall from Heaven, we have whole games within games. I mean, you guys made a card game inside the game, right? I mean, it's not like you just sort of bolted on a couple little add-ons and tweaked a few values, right? That's that to me is what's so fascinating about mods is that I see the amount of work and the amount of polish that's in Fall from Heaven, and and to me, I'm like, that's a whole which is game. Exceptional, but that's exceptionally rare, though, Julian. I mean, most Civ mods we're looking at, well, are, sure, inter interface mods, they're new sieves, uh, their color palettes. I mean, they're real. I mean, fall from having a total conversion of which there are, you know, maybe a few. They're a handful. Uh, but, but I mean, it, at some point, would it not have been easier to start from scratch, or do I just have no sense of the value here? You mean, what would be the difference if if Derek wanted to make fall from heaven just from from, from scratch? Nothing? Yeah. Well, Derek should probably answer that one. Uh, <laughs> no. It, it, it is incredibly more difficult to do it from scratch. It was such a godsend for us to be able to have a working game layer so that we can get right to, uh, you know, putting the new systems on. And the big thing that I keep talking about is, you know, those regular releases, six weeks, eight weeks, they are what really keeps your project alive. If you, if you take four months before your next version comes out, the community forgets about you. All of your team members, they're not getting that positive feedback, so they, they grow bored with the project. Um, 
we can only have those regular releases uh, if we have a, a fully working game underneath. So in the beginning, it's just Civilization 4 with a couple changes, and we try those out, and then a couple more changes. Uh, if we had to build our own game engine, we're talking a year or two of work just to build that engine up before it's even playable, and and uh, you know it's hard for a volunteer team to get through that stretch. Right, right. But, but when I think of the the card game that you guys made, which I apologize, I can't, is, is it some some something or there? I'm, I'm Somnium. Somnium. Sorry. I mean, that to me struck me as you could have just made that as a game, right? You could have just you know put put some layers around that, and that would have been a game all by itself that had nothing to do with civilization. Absolutely. And somebody did that. They put, there's a website out there where you can go and you can play other players in Somnium. So yes, that's possible. But that's nowhere near the scope of Fall from Heaven, of course. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. No, no, I, I get that's just one little piece of it. In a sense, like, I mean, Derek, I'll just say, if it, tell me if this is accurate, but to some extent, it seems like you're competing for talent amongst the mod community, right? Like, because there's presumably a number of sort of artists hanging around, you know, the Civ community looking for e- for interesting projects to work on. And that's only going to be true for maybe a couple years, you know, after the game comes out. So, um, you know, the project Fall from Heaven has to look like, has to look more appealing to the other mods, looks like it's more, this is this is a project that's actually going to come together, actually is someday going to, you know, quote unquote, get finished, right? Yes, and uh, to be honest, I feel a little bad because you're absolutely right. We are competing for talent, which means if there's another mod out there that has an artist that is incredible, then I need to do something to make sure that he is working on Fall from Heaven. And and I did that. There was a mod called uh, Warhammer that had Stephen Weiss, who made most of the art in Fall from Heaven by the time it's done. And he said, well, you know, you can work on that mod and get your, you know, they have 3,000 downloads or whatever it was at the time. And, or you can work on Fall from Heaven. We have 50,000 downloads and, you know. What would you prefer to do? And and had people come over that way. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. We are fighting for those talented individuals, and download count helps with that. Being able to be in one of the, you know, Civilization Four expansions, as the Beyond the Sword expansion, that helped me recruit people. Uh, so yeah, it's it's about talent. Well, that's uh, that's something um, I'd like to examine a little bit. Like the, the motives for people joining these joining these projects. You you say that you you can you can sort of poach a guy from another mod team by you know, dangling the download numbers in front of him, and uh, I guess, you know, what's what's motivating a lot of the, you know, amateur artists, uh, you know, coders that you're working with. Um, why are they in it if it's not just for love? Like that guy obviously wasn't so invested in Warhammer that he wasn't willing to bail. Uh, they are in it just for love. They just have to make sure that their time isn't wasted. So as the mod leader, it was my job to work harder than anybody else in the mod. So everybody who was working hard, and, and everybody was working hard, they could look to me and say, you know what, They're, I'm turning out a lot of work too. Um, so that's that's a big motivator for them. So they just want to see that the time that they spend is appreciated and that it will get into a final draft. And, and as the mod leader, if you can show that you know, you're heading in that direction, then it, it, it works. And the mod Sorry, the mod, the mod community is so chaotic, right? Because there'll be some people who just, you know, uh, are phenomenally productive, come out with, you know, a, a series of mods, especially what is sort of known as mod mods, which is like little components, you, you know, various mod makers can use for their, their mods. And then, you know, that person may just suddenly disappear one day and just be gone forever, right? Um, and so every... Every mod has to assume that at any moment one person can just completely disappear, right? So that's why you, there always has to be like that one person, like Derek, who is you know determined that no matter what happens, this mod is going to come out and it's going to be fantastic. 
and one of the rules on Fall from Heaven was that nobody makes code changes except for me. Um, not because I'm a good programmer, because I'm I'm not. Uh, I learned during the process of this there were much better programmers on the on the Fall from Heaven team that I learned from. Um, but I didn't want anybody putting code in Fall from Heaven that I didn't understand because the threat, just like Soren said, was they would walk away, and then we would have a bug, and I wouldn't know how to fix it. Um, so yeah, you do absolutely have to prepare yourself for the eventuality that anybody could leave at any time, and the mod still had to go on. Well, that's pretty interesting. So did they they would send you their code. And you would essentially rewrite it in your own format or something and, along those lines? Yep. And when we say my own format, we mean <laughs> dumbed down version sure, <laughs> for me. Sure. Yes. <laughs> now, when you, when you were, when development was going full tilt, um, you know, you said you were working hard. How, how hard were you working? What did, what did an average day of modding look like for you? What was going on in your life at this time that you could, you know, tackle a project like this? The first three months of Fall from Heaven 2 which is the project, when we say Fall from Heaven, that's what we're talking about. Fall from Heaven 1 was more of a tester. Um, my work sent me to England for three months to work on a project. So it was normal days, you know, eight-hour days working uh, at my job. And then for the rest of the time, I'm in this nice little house by myself, no friends, no family. And it was, you know, uh, if I wasn't working or sleeping, I was working on Fall from Heaven for three months. So it was the the best way to really get focus on a mod and and to really take that opportunity to work through it. And I took that opportunity for my work uh, because I knew I wanted to devote some time to Civ Four and I wanted to make this game. So it worked out very well. But it did allow me the luxury of devoting all of my time to modding for a while. So how many people in the mod community? Uh in general, Soren or Derek or even Dillian and Rob can answer this. How many of these people are actually using this as an avenue to get into the games industry? Because I know this is very common. You have level designers and modders right. in the shooting uh, environment to think, well, this is my entree. I prove well, these skills I mean, that I can do it now. Build their whole, build, whole, the whole business on that at this point, haven't they? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, is this common Is in your experience, well, I, Derek or Soren? Or, well, I know that, um, like for example, with it, with Bioware, like they will not hire a writer, period, who hasn't used their tools, who hasn't made some sort of quest or story uh, using their tool set, right? right. Um, and that makes sense. You know, there's no reason, you know, why that person shouldn't be capable of doing that. I mean, that's that's what they're going to have to do when they when they come on board. Um, and that's that's always the first thing I tell anyone who is interested in working in games, especially if you know they're a designer, you know, programmer candidate is. You know, make a mod. I mean, nothing, nothing will separate you from, uh, you know, your your random your random you know other candidate like some sort of, um, you know, interesting game project. And you know, some people, some people can make their own game from scratch. It'll be interesting, but you know, oftentimes you can get a lot more exposure by standing on top of another game. Now, I mean, one thing a, a debate debate I've always heard is. Um, do you go to, do you join one of those professional programs for, you know, game design, uh, development studies, that sort of thing, or are, is your time better served by learning to be a really good modder? Um, <laughs> there's for some, all of our listeners who want to get into the game industry. Yeah. I mean, I, I always tell people, I mean, your best bet is always to try to get some sort of skill. I mean, this is a bit of a, of a different topic, but I always tell people, you know, Learn to either become a programmer or an artist, right? Like those, those are skills that can't be taken away from you, um, and are are things they're looking for. Um, if you want to go the road of trying to become a designer or a producer, you know that's fine. But just know that nothing, there's nothing 
concrete that's going to separate you from almost anyone else out there in the job in the job market, right? Um, but outside of that, um, even if you have those skills, you really want to do something that separates you, which usually means some sort of game project or some sort of mod. I mean, the nice thing about the game development programs are that they're going to force you to make games like that, right? They're, they're going to force you to make some sort of project that you can you can show off. Um, so, I mean, that, that's well, all a big plus. And, and yeah, if you look at, I mean, look at John Chaper, right? I mean, John Chaper's making Civ Five, and he was known primarily as a modder outside of the people who were working with him prior to prior to this project, frankly. I mean, I mean, I think most people knew him back in the day as Trip, right? I mean, he was he right. was a guy in the mod community making mods, wasn't he? Yeah, he bubbled up through our community. I would say I knew him more as a forumite, I guess. Um, but he definitely made some interesting mods for Civ 3. Um, and he was just generally one of the most vocal, intelligent members of the Civ 3 community. So we invited him into the Civ 4 beta. And he, he kind of just... Um, sort of, you know, um, what's the right way to put this, worked his way onto the team from the outside. He took it upon himself essentially to write documentation for our Python files. That he, was, <laughs> he was just going to sit down and I'm going to document, all, which, is, which is one of those things that like, sure, we'd love to do that, but come on, like we're, we, don't have, we don't have the resources to, to do that. That's like a luxury. So, uh, you, know, you know, John just basically took it upon himself to do that. And when, when you do that, you know, a team is going to notice that, right? I mean, there's there's just no way you're not going to look at that type of person and say... Right, because it, it, it shows not only the act of will, but the intelligence to be able to presumably do a good job at it as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And so essentially with Civ 4, it's like we snapped him up before he even could become a modder for that game because we saw... Like he was, he was already already capable of that, which was which was great. But I'd like to hear from Derek. Like, yeah, what of your you know fifteen people or so? Like, what what are their goals per se? Like, I mean, some of them probably just doing it for the love of it, but some of them are probably wanting to get into the industry too, right? Um, yeah, some would like to get into the industry. I, I have a different look at modding than than maybe you do. You see it more from the business side. Um, for me, modding is just about. I think it's natural. I think a lot of people like to mod. I think we modded all of our games growing up when you play Monopoly. You know, do you have free? What happens when you land on free parking? Do you replace the money in there? Do you not put the money in there? That's that's a mod to that game. Those are those are house rules. I don't think anybody played Dungeons and Dragons by the real rules. Everybody had their house rules. Um, so modding is just something that is inherent in us is, and we've always done it but uh, video games have kind of locked us down so it's it's nothing more than being able to to jump out and to be able to turn our video games our interactive video games into from games into toys things we can fiddle with things we can play with i think that's where a lot of the desire comes from so it's not just you know people looking to make that jump um from uh you know non industry people into the gaming industry although i think that's a part of it but i think there's just a lot of people out there that would like to to be able to play with their games in new ways that modding allows them to do and right now it's it's fairly early in the you know modding industry and in that the tools aren't all there so your average joe can't sit down for an evening and make a you know a mod that he would be impressed with um but as the tools get better, and I think Civ 4 was a huge step towards doing that, that, that it really is getting to that point where we can begin to play with our games a little bit. Yeah, so what makes, a good, what makes a good modding tool? I mean, we want to have at least, is it important to have some barrier uh, 
to you know have quality so people can find the good mods, have the dedication to get into it, or the more important have them be you know real easy gooey stuff. Just I'm I'm thinking about um. It's the I'm little big planet I'm, problem, right? The little big yeah. planet problem. If you make it too easy, you end up with such a pile of crap, you can never get anything good out of it. I'm thinking of uh, Field of Glory. It's a war game that I'm playing now. I mean, creating your own scenarios isn't quite a mod, but it's a step towards modding. You develop your own scenario, your own map, you do the research, you do the balance. It's really, I mean, scenario editors and map editors are really the first step towards modding, in my opinion. It's it's the, the, the gateway drug. It gets you in. Um so I'm doing some of that. It's actually quite easy to develop my own scenario. Um, I, I mean, I'm an idiot. So I, when it comes to this sort of thing, uh, is it important to have you know some sort of barrier, or is it more important just get the creative minds just banging away at the stuff? Uh, my take is that I, I disagree with Julian. I think it's important that we just get people in and doing it. And I think in the beginning, yeah, you're going to get a lot of crap mods but that's that's normal in any industry if you talk about people that are writing books you know what go back and read their early papers that they wrote the things that they thought were awesome at the time and they're they're horrible well but, i'm not suggesting you'd like charge people fifteen hundred dollars in order to be able to mod i'm not suggesting some sort of artificial barrier but i'm saying that problem of finding the good mods in something that's easily moddable is a real issue as a consumer, right? I mean, I'm, I, I have no talent in this regime at all. Unless somebody asked me to write a script for something, I'm never going to participate in a mod. But as a consumer of mods, finding the good ones can be tricky. Absolutely, yeah. And that's a big challenge. It is a big challenge in Civilization Four, not only in being able to get to mods like Fall from Heaven, but just getting past the barrier of the people's belief that you know, mods aren't professional quality or mods cause problems or, you know, getting past that people that are even willing to go out on the internet and do searches for it is, is the, my biggest, uh, issue in trying to get fall from heaven out. I, I pretty much assume that if you were on Civ Fanatics and you were looking and downloading mods, you probably heard of or saw fall from heaven. You know, if fantasy mods aren't for you, you didn't download it, you didn't try it, but that's fine. At least, right. you know, got in front of you. But my concern was there's a huge percentage of people out there that never even looked, and I, I can never reach that audience. So, so yeah, I agree with that part of it. Yeah, I, I'd say there's a new. This is sort of an, and I think uh, game development studios are becoming aware of it. But this is sort of a new challenge for them. Like, it's one thing to enable modding; it's another thing to try to basically become the, um, you know, intermediary between the modders and the consumers. And there is a whole wide range is range of ways to do that, and a lot of studios have have failed. Um, but you know, some of the ones that are, um, you know, sort of, you know, there's, there's different approaches, but, you know, some of the ones that have kind of succeeded the best are, you know, what, you know, Valve has an interesting approach where they, it seems like they personally, you know, look through mods uh, extensively and then try to support the teams as much as they can. Um, the StarCraft II has another sort of interesting approach where, you know, they've sort of, de you know, developed really fantastic modding tools and are trying to, to support, you know, um, you know, an automated way to allow people to, to find mods. And uh, I haven't played with it myself much, but I assume, you know, rate them and, and rank them and so on and so right. forth. Um, but th this, is a, this is a real asset. I mean, this is now like having a good, um, you know, multiplayer browser is having some sort of good, um, you know, mod browser. It could be just as important to the success of your product. Does that provide some level of uh, encourage some sort of conformity in the mod community? If you know you have 
say I mean, Civ Five will have the sort of mod browser. Uh, they're probably not going to have every single mod on it because otherwise you still have you know the iPhone app problem. Um, you'll have the ratings, but you won't know what those actually mean. You'll have to read about them. Um, so there'll probably be some picking and choosing, right. deciding what what to include, what not to include. Yeah, uh, and, does, and I, think that, there's, I think there's also inevitably like a bit of a tension. Like the more the more like a development studio wants to take over. Uh, being the intermediary, you know, where you, which is, I mean, the, the products I would think of in that realm would be like Spore or Little Big Planet. Um, to some extent, that really limits what people can do, right? As opposed to something where it's just this big open engine and people will always just be able to download the stuff and install it directly on their computer. You know, that's, that's the other end of the scale. And uh, there is a certain tension where if you really want it to be a very smooth, process for people to find mods, install them, and make sure they're not going to uh, be malware and, you know, do various bad things to your to your game and to their systems or whatever, you know, you do kind of have to take some tools away from them. And, uh, you know, I think every team has to kind of figure out exactly where they're going to want to be on that continuum, but it, it is a trade-off. Now, one, one thing that I, I... attention that I see um, comes with what happens when mod teams begin uh, kicking the developer's ass, basically? Um, turning up <laughs> products that are vastly superior to what the developer turned out. Uh, is but is also, this going to get ugly? Is, this, is that where this is going? Game suck. No, um, it has personally, I would, I would love that. I mean, like, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why when I usually I, I talk to people about like you know good traits in, in d- designers and developers. I often say humility is 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 a big one, right? That, I, you know, it's it's a really really powerful to be able to release a game and then say be able to admit this is probably not the best version of this game, and I'm going to go out with an open mind trying to see what people can do with it because that really empowers you because no no one person is going to be able to make you know a great a great game from nothing, so. Watching what your mod community does is one of the, the absolute best ways to kind of be able to see your design clearly, see the parts that work and the parts that don't work. Because if there's something that doesn't work, that's where you're going to see the most mods, you know, trying to fix this, this thing that you didn't fix. And, you know, I mean, it just it gives you an honest appraisal of your, of your work. And the real advantage to mods in that is you're... Develop, good developers have always taken community feedback for ideas and listened to complaints and all that. But with modding, th- those can be more than just personal opinions. People are playing it. Other members of the community are commenting on it. You know, you can try it out. You can let it sit out there for a couple right. months and let people play through it to make sure it really is good. So that's nice too. Like uh, AI mods uh, are very popular. Um, and they are they often, I mean, they don't always make the game better. Sometimes they make the game impossible and stupid because they're geared to a small team's idea of what AI is or what AI is supposed to be. Uh, but you see some good AI mods out there. Um, I think the first mod that I played heavily was one for the first Europa Universalis game, which let you play, which unlocked every nation because the original EU just had the great powers as playable. The first one unlocked every single nation. So, of course, they had to do that in the, in the sequel. They just couldn't have it where, oh, you only play France and Austria and Russia, and that's pretty much it. Um, so you can see this sort of idea of developer, the mod maker saying, well, the, you, you built your game wrong. Um, right. Which is always nice to see, but I'm wondering if that's a source of some of the tension between designers and modders. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, there is kind of a definitely natural attitude <laughs> 
that you just sometimes have, especially I think if going into uh, release, there's kind of these open contentious issues. Um, I mean, there's a number of games that have big fan communities and certain features get announced and pe you know, some people line up on one side and some people line up on the other side. And I think you're, if you're in that type of environment, it's hard not to kind of feel like whatever decision you came up with is the right one. Um, so, you know, I think that's an attitude that really needs to be fought. Um, I guess I should probably talk about one of, one of the projects I'm working on right now, which really is, it's not really my main project. It's just kind of an experiment. Um, right. But it's kind of my attempt to make, I guess what you could say is like a, a strategy game wiki online. Um, it's uh, a little web-based gaming site called uh, strategystation.com. And on it, I have basically just three little games. They're all fairly simple, um, but they're all, um, you know, you go on, you know, you go to the website, you know, you can play a game, you can host a game, you can invite, you know, friends can come in, you can play against them. Um, you know, it, most of these games are, uh, you can play asynchronously, so you can play them over weeks or whatever. Um, but all of the, all of the game data is uh, in XML, similar to how it worked in CIF4, uh, and people can go to, go to the site and, and uh, create their own mods, um, and then look, you know, look at all the XML files and change them however they want to, you know, and then host those mods. <coughs> and people who go to the site will see uh, in the games list all the games that are played, and they'll see which ones are using the default rules and which ones are using um, the, uh, you know, one of you know one of the various different mods. Um, so, like right now, there's most of the, for some reason. Uh, most of the players are Japanese, so there's a lot of uh, you know, Japanese Japanese language mods, but <coughs> but there's also kind of a the the most popular game is kind of this little uh, it kind of feels like I guess you'd say a Civ card game thing. It's called Kingdoms, and um, I was kind of had sort of this continual disagreement with some of the veteran players who didn't like the way I was doing victory points. Uh, they wanted victory points for buildings, and I I I didn't want to do that. I wanted there to be one aspect of the game where you focus on infrastructure just for infrastructure's worth, right? Um, so they changed that. They're like, we're going to make a mod that's that's built for giving victory points to buildings. Um, and currently, it's much more popular than the default version of the game, right? And uh, um, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I mean, I kind of like that, right? Like, I I want these things to take off a life of their own. You know, I think people get really get a kick and, and really get involved in games if they really feel like uh, even, even if they're not the modders, they're they're making kind of a specific choice to to play this version of the game that they knew they know bubbled up organically. You know, I think that's that's kind of a really neat feeling. It's it's you know, it's not it's not this type of um, one way consumption world that they're in, and uh, uh, I just think that's cool. You know. There'll be a link to Strategy Station at the bottom of the podcast. I haven't checked it out yet, uh, but I'll make sure that uh, Japan doesn't dominate uh, the development and the future of whatever is on Strategy Station. There's well, you definitely have to play Conquest. I like Kingdoms quite a bit, too. Yeah. I haven't played any of them yet. I don't have time for anything anymore. Well, keep in mind, it's just a prototype. I've never, I've never done web development before, but, uh, but uh, the games work, and uh, Kingdoms is, is, seems to be pretty fun. A lot of people seem to like it, so... So there are a couple of things I wanted to get into about uh, Fall from Heaven <coughs> itself, um, and and one of them is I'm sorry, I just got a weird message. Um, one one of the things that that I find really interesting is how much um, lore there is in this world. 
Um, and I guess I, I, I guess I'm curious. Why did you make? Why did you go to, go to such extraordinary lengths to create this rich backstory? Um, I already had the backstory. Um, a lot of it. So I'd been playing Dungeons and Dragons for years, seven, 17 years worth of story there, and just never got the chance to play it anymore. I was just too busy for it. Uh, never got to get with my friends, you know, got old, got married. Uh, but I still had all that background lore. But I, I, Fall from Heaven was never an attempt to recreate that game. Instead, when I because I had a, a unique story, I wasn't trying to make a Lord of the Rings mod, or I wasn't trying to make a Star Wars mod. I could pick the pieces of my own lore that made sense for civilization. Um, so if there were things in the original Dungeons and Dragons games that that I liked but didn't make sense in the game, those got cut. If there were pieces I needed to make the you know, Fall from Heaven game better, then I made up new pieces and I, I made up new lore there. Um, but I, I always say I'm a struggling writer that tr- that tried to be a game designer. You know, I'm not a very good writer, but I could force my story on people if I if I gave them a game <laughs> they wanted to play. So that was kind of my strategy there to to force everybody into that world. Now, did yeah, the presence yeah. of all this backstory inform the uh, inform the design you did? No, design. <coughs> that's what I was trying to say. Design always took precedent okay. over the backstory. So I always manipulated mm-hmm. the backstory, created leaders, or got rid of leaders if they made the game worse and if i'd been using um public ip like star if i've been trying to make a star wars mod i would have had to have had jedi in there um, it, it didn't matter people would not play a star wars game without jedi and, and i didn't like that that model so if i started with something that only i knew i could make the game that i thought was fun and then fill in the lore as background you know it's interesting i'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of any real success like really successful mods that were based on uh someone else's ip that aren't essentially new ip now, of course, you know that's part of the reason is because if they become really successful, they'll get they'll get shut down, right? Um, right. But I think there's definitely also something to the fact that uh, people need to have um, you know kind of a blank slate to work with. Um, you know, that's that's important. I mean, it seems like it's kind of like almost every game gets the Star Wars mod or whatever, and it's good for it's good for a blog post basically. But it's like. Where is that going to go? You know, is that yeah, is that really exactly. going to take full advantage of whatever tools uh, this 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 the, the modding for this game has? How successful is the Alpha Centauri mod for Civ Four? <laughs> well, that was supposed to be pretty decent, actually. That's a that's a possible exception to that rule. Um, and Derek, do you have much experience with that? Yeah, I've played Planetfall, and uh, yeah, it's it's very well done. I don't know what the amount of downloads are off the top of my head, but uh, but it's a well-made mod. I will say, though, uh, the gentleman that made that, one of the early things he said was he wasn't carrying over the rules just carte blanche. He was bringing in what he thought made for the best game. So he's he broke that model early on um, so that he could make the game that he wanted to make, or the game that made the most sense on the Civ 4 engine, which was a right. good step. Uh, so do you want to say anything about uh, bringing Fall from Heaven over to uh, Civ Fork because you ended up developing a scenario for the Beyond the Sword expansion pack. Um, it's I'm not sure how common it is for developers to reach out and say, "Well, we've liked your mod. Now, why don't you come do a scenario for us?" It wasn't the full fall from heaven, but it was adapted from the world you set up. Uh, how does that come about? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think uh, Alex sent me an email. Firaxis had been wonderful, by the way, to work with. Uh, Soren and uh, Alex and, and everybody had always answered my... Uh, Alex. 
Alex Manzaris, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Just making sure, making a, sure our listeners have all the names. He's a Civ 4 programmer. Right. And also uh, a member of the community who got hired by the team. So. <laughs> So both in answering my questions as well as the, there was a couple um, new features snuck into patches because Fall from Heaven needed those features for things that we were planning. So they were very supportive all the way through. Uh, and Alex asked if I you know, wanted to be, create a scenario for the Beyond the Sword mod. They, they were very nice about it. They didn't even um, say that it had to be a Fall from Heaven. Just give me the opportunity to go ahead and create one. We did make Age of Ice for it. And it was nice for us because, uh, of course, it gave us a lot of exposure um, to players that don't typically go for mods. And it allowed us to make, we intentionally made a pared down version of Fall from Heaven that was very simple because our big, one of our biggest challenges was uh, Fall from Heaven's a very big, very complex game and hard to get into. So if we make a little introductory version that allows people to get used to some of the concepts, you know, spell casting for the units and uh, the way that units upgrade into other unit versions as they, as they go up through levels, they get used to that, then it's a much more... Uh, palatable bite to jump up to the full Fall from Heaven 2 piece. and uh, It also gives the impression that they played, since a lot of players played Age of Ice first, that they played that as a little mod and then they saw this bigger mod that was out there that seemed like an update for them, even though Fall from Heaven 2 actually started two years before Age of Ice did. Great. So any final questions or thoughts or ideas? Well, I mean, I, I'd be just curious, interested to know where you're headed from here. I mean, now that you've, I mean, uh, you know, is is there a next project that you're working on? Or are you looking to sort of make the jump over into doing this sort of as a full time gig? I mean, what's what's we we talked about sort of what modders in general see as their path. What's your path? What he wants to know is, are you already working on the version for Civ Five? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you guys are breaking up on me. I can't uh, answer these questions. Um, I am. I'll take, I'll, take that as a, I'll take that as a yes. I'm working on a Fall from Heaven project, but I can't talk about it, unfortunately. Uh, okay. See, I didn't know that. I didn't mean to set you up. I actually didn't know. <laughs> uh, I would. I do have one question for Julian, actually, um, because I think he's probably the only one that's going to buy into this logic. But I think Magic the Gathering, <laughs> <laughs> not because you're crazy. Um, I think not just because you're crazy. Yeah, I think Magic: The Gathering is a moddable game. I think that was so unique about it, and what draws so many people into it is that you have your creatures, you have your spells, but if you just had those, it would be a very boring game. What was most exciting about it was Howling Mind and Winter Orb in that first version that were cards that allowed you to change the way the game worked, that allowed you to right. change the absolutely, rules. absolutely. Yeah, so, I, I, I agree completely. And actually, uh, at least in my community, when I first got into magic, I was living in San Francisco and was part of a really active magic uh, community. And uh, and people did mod the game. People came in all the time with, oh, I invented these four new artifacts. We have to try these in our decks. And, and, and people really got into it. I think that to some extent, um, you know, the, the professionalization of collectible games uh, has kind of driven that away in in kind of a sad way because there's a real tradition I think 
in the RPG roots that really go behind something like Magic the Gathering of doing those kinds of mods. I mean, we just called right. them house rules, right? We didn't call them right. mods. And, uh, you know, the longest running D&D campaign I ever played was only about 50% D&D and 50% was the drug adult idea of the guy who was running the game. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think some of the best games are that way. And, you know, those of us that, that are privileged enough to, you know, have friends who are designers who are constantly playtesting stuff are used to that kind of dynamic sense of a game. A game isn't always the same thing every time you sit down because you sit down this time and he says, actually, I changed all these rules. Let's try it this way. And that's a really refreshing thing. And, and I think there's, there's really not enough of it. And, and it's, it's a pleasure when a designer has the, I, you know, the, the fortitude to say, hey, I want people to play with my toys, right? I want people to take what I've done and do something brilliant with it that I maybe never thought of. And I think it's increasingly rare. I, and and I, right. I, I wish that more game systems did. I wish Dominion, you know, Dominion's the card game, had a had a, an official mod system, right, where you could, like, build your own decks. I mean, they, they sort of do because what's preventing anybody from making their own cards, but I wish it was right. a more obvious thing. I know, I know that uh, Race of the Galaxy shipped with blank cards because uh, the designer wanted people to do that. Um, and I also know at, uh, at Max's, Dominion is kind of the default lunch card game, and Currently, I think they're mostly just plain uh, homemade cards um, that uh, that people are, are you know making up and trying yeah, out. That's, and that's around awesome. With. Um, that's awesome. You know, which is which is pretty cool, and uh, and that's why I really I really want to me that's the big advantage for having a card game online, right? Like if you know Dominion's online and it is you know it's on Birch Spiel or how to pronounce that, um, and uh, you know it's it's up there. But how cool would it be if People could design those cards and then build their own set, you know, build their own, you know, uh, you know, mod sets, which people can, you know, try out and rank and rate. I mean, it would just explode uh, the the possibilities. It would turn the game almost into a platform, right? I mean, that would be that would be awesome. And that would be that would be the best thing ever. And and I, I just wish more games really embraced that. And I feel like all too often it's only like in little indie corners of the business people are willing to expose themselves that much. Right. Yeah, because of course the the issue I guess would be, I mean I don't know if this is the issue with Dominion, right? But one of the issues would be that the uh, that they might say, well, what happens to our expansions, right? Like if if you own Dominion and you say, well, now people can design whatever cards they want to and they can make them available. Well, now you can no longer you can no longer sell them cards. So, you know, which is another thing uh, we haven't really addressed in this podcast, but. Modding is also starting to come in conflict with some of the overall trends of the game industry right now. You know, as the, we move, DLC and micro content yeah. and yeah. yeah, exactly. Which I think is, you know, uh, you know, ten years ago this was not an issue at all, right? Um, but uh, you know, and it's sad because as modding tools become more powerful, um, the business realities may make them um, have to be, you know, uh, hobbled in some way. Well, that would be sad, wouldn't it? <laughs> Another reason to hate DLC. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, it, if, it, if it impedes, you know, the creativity. And yeah, the no, I agree. There. I agree. Have you ever encountered nope. indispensable DLC? Because I haven't. Well, a bunch of civilizations are going to be indispensable for Civ Five. If I want to play the Babylonians and a oh, few others, I guess. Well, there's, there's a classic example, right? I mean, presumably, it would be simple. You know, if Civ Five is extremely moddable... Yeah. Presumably, it's simple to just come up with the Babylonian Civ mod. Right. Um, 
that you could probably slot into any number of other mods. I mean, I guess it's it's mostly just an ease of use thing. You know, they're just assuming so few people are going to mod it, are going to, you know, download but the if, mod. Or but if somebody, yeah, but if somebody else can make it and download it and make it easily available on the Civ right. 5 mod marketplace. Right, that's right. So if they have a mod browser, then suddenly that's competing with their, their DLC. I, I don't know. These are... These are tough questions. I'm not sure how they've answered it, but there's no obvious way to do this. It's certainly good for the consumer either way, though, uh, having the benefit of both. I'm playing through Fallout 3 right now with all the DLC, and I'm uh, loving it. I loved the game the first time through. I'm loving it even more this time. That's all. you know. So there is DLC out there that's fantastic. And right. Oh, absolutely. Right. But by I mean, the same I'm token, not... Oblivion was, in my opinion, almost unplayable without some of the mods. I enjoyed some sure. of the mods for that game so much in the terms of the interface and the texture yeah. mods and, and all the things that people did to Oblivion. I, it's hard for me to even imagine people playing that on a console because of that. How did they do the Fallout DLC for PC? Did they just punt on that, or what did they do? No, it's all there. Uh, Steam has it listed. I ended up getting the Game of the Year version, so it's all <laughs> included. But uh, but yeah, you can download it as a separate Steam. But if you buy if you buy it from a store, it just is already ready to integrate with Steam, so you can still buy the DLC. Is that yep. right? Yep. 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 Okay. Yeah. So that's not a problem. Oblivion's an interesting one too because that's one game that I waited a year before I played Oblivion just because I knew that in that year, you know, the modders would have fun with it. They'd make <laughs> a thousand mods and 50 of them would be absolutely make the game so much better for someone, you know, like me who likes a little more complexity and more detail and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, you know, that, that's, a, that's a funny uh, situation too because there's a, there's a few companies and uh, Paradox is one that probably jumps in my head right away, which, you know, if they, they kind of, you kind of relies on this. There's kind of this tradition that you kind of expect that, um, and uh, um, that can be really bad for a company, I imagine, because early sales are important, right? Yep. Yeah, people who wait, and if you turn out a game that works the first time out, people won't wait as much. Um, so this was a great discussion. Uh, f- some points of order for our listeners. A reminder to the... Uh, D.C. area listeners, people in suburban Maryland, suburban Virginia, and Washington, D.C., the first ever local Flash of Steel Three Moves Ahead gathering will be on August 14th uh, in the early afternoon. I will still set the time to work on that at Gordon Biersch on 5th Street. Uh, it is linked on a post on the blog, and I will update the blog at the end of the week with a timeline early afternoon on the 14th. Please post in that thread uh, in that post <laughs> comment on that post on Flash of Steel so I can get a head count or send me an email at troy.goodfellow at gmail.com or reply to my Twitter um, so I can make a big enough reservation. I have a few people who have already said they're going to come down or come up or be there uh, I'll try to have enough buttons for everyone and we can just hang out and drink beer and do that. Um, this is episode 76 which means episode 80 is coming up soon what does that mean? Uh, episode 40 last year was our question and answer episode. So I will do another question and answer session uh, on episode 80. So if you have a question for the Three Moves Ahead team, please send it to me once again at troy.goodfellow at gmail.com. Say uh, for the question and answer episode, and I'll deal with that. I know that the number one question is going to be, what happened to Tom? Uh but please don't ask me what happened to Tom. I'm getting a lot of that already on Formspring and on emails, and you can ask Tom what happened to Tom. Hopefully we'll have him back soon. Next week we talk StarCraft II, uh, the game that is supposed to be consuming my week, but I find it very hard to get excited about it. 
am I broken or am I just tired from my vacation? Gross. So next week we'll talk okay. about StarCraft II uh, in pretty good detail. Uh, Derek and Soren, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. No, no problem. Happy to be here. Hopefully we can have Soren again sometime soon to talk about his themes and mechanics posts on his blog, uh, spun out of his game dev columns and his GDC talk. If you haven't read them, there will be links to those as well. Uh, because they're really, I think, essential for understanding why some strategy games work and some strategy games don't, and some settings are more malleable than others. Julian and Rob, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. And good night, everybody. <laughs>